Today, I want to start off with a question. What do you think the future will look like? Take a minute, picture it. Do you see flying cars and hoverboards? Or maybe you're looking at some kind of a climate change apocalypse? Will the world be a more kind and caring place? Or are we looking at a Mad Max scenario? I'll be honest, I don't know what to expect. Predicting tomorrow is about as reliable as a spacesuit made out of duct tape. But when it comes to the future, one thing we can be pretty sure of is that more and more of the human story will take place in outer space. So, for our grand finale this season, we are going to cut ties with the present and head out into the future. Hmm, let me try that again with a little reverb. Into the future. 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 This is For All Mankind, the official podcast. And I am your host, Chris Marshall. In this episode, we're going to look into what we can predict about the future of space exploration. We'll speak to the commander of the first ever space mission to be crewed entirely by civilians. We'll also talk to two space psychologists about some of the far out technology that will keep deep space travelers feeling connected to Earth. And finally, we'll hear from a professor of space and society about some of the important decisions that we need to make as we look into settling the stars. But first, I talked to a man who spent a lot of time thinking about the future, co-creator of For All Mankind, Ron Moore. Hi, guys. Today on the show, I have got the big boss, the head chief, the man who is the steward of this ship, the captain of us all. I've got our showrunner, executive producer, Ronald D. Moore. Hi, Ron. Hi, Chris. I think I want all those titles to now be my credit. (laughs) Even if you don't watch our show, you may have heard of Ron Moore. He's probably best known for his science fiction work, writing for Battlestar Galactica, Outlander, and Star Trek. Now, he's creating big science fiction series, like For All Mankind. But he's never forgotten how outer space made him feel when he was younger. Before I discovered Star Trek as a kid, I watched the moon landings. And then that drove me to anything with a spaceship I want to see. And that's what eventually led me to Star Trek and science fiction in general. So the love of the real space program and science fiction were always kind of intertwined for me. And then this project came along and I thought about, I want to see the, you know, space program I was promised as a kid. Mm -hmm. I want to see that happen. I want to see us really go boldly out there and do these amazing things. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the 90s, there wasn't so much of a focus on science in my world. But now NASA's got their new programs and SpaceX is making commercial efforts to get to outer space. So it seems like the world is kind of heading back in that direction of having curiosity and intrigue in space. What is that like for you, being the kid from the the 70s growing up and having such a love for it and seeing it kind of come full circle? It's great. It's really exciting. And I'm very gratified to see it come back around while I'm still here, you know, because I was starting to wonder if it ever would. And I think that it's because of the commercial players are are starting to make that possible. It's Mm -hmm. exciting to see the videos of the rockets at SpaceX launch straight up and then land straight down, just like we've seen in, you know, science fiction movies for many, many years. 
And suddenly people can start to imagine more and more space travel. Like, oh, maybe I could take a ride to space someday mm-hmm. before I die. Maybe I could afford a ticket or win the lottery or like you could actually reach it and touch it. It's crazy that the Apollo program was 50 years ago. And Man. you've seen the spacecraft because you've sat in them. They're like antiques. They're like mm-hmm. crazy Model <laughs> T. Like you can't believe people actually got in these things and flew them in yeah, space. Yeah, no, there's you know? more technology in a Toyota Prius than oh, there yeah. is in those things. Mm-hmm. There's so much more computing power in your phone than there was in all of NASA when they did this program. So it's an unbelievable achievement, but it become this sort of old thing that we did a long time ago. Mm-hmm. But ever since, it's been just another line item in the budget. But that's the reality. Now that you get to places like SpaceX and you know Branson's company and Blue Origin, and if they can make a go of it and they can make money out of it, then they're going to do it. And sure. it can happen. So it's exciting to see that there's other possibilities which might free up NASA to do more hard research and development that then these other companies could take and do amazing adventures with. As we come to a close, I'm curious, you know, looking back on season one, now season two, what do you want a viewer who has become a fan of From Mankind, what do you want them to take away from all of this? I just want them to think it's fun and wow, isn't space great? I want it to just kind of rekindle that sense of wonder and awe Mm. and romance about flying Mm. into space and doing amazing things because I just think it's uplifting And I think it touches, you know, the human spirit. And I hope that the show is able to get them excited about it all over again. I'd like to think our show is inspiring people to take an interest in space. And it's great timing, too. Because in both For All Mankind and in the real world, space is becoming more accessible. In episode eight of the series, when Danny Stevens is talking to Karen Baldwin, she drops some serious wisdom about the future of space travel. Everyone wants to go to space. Not me. Never have. Everyone but you. Mm-hmm. But most people never will. So coming here, buying some goofy trinket is the closest they'll ever come to the real thing. Till NASA starts selling tickets. Mm-hmm. NASA's never going to do that. They would never sell tickets to space, right? I really doubt it. Someone will. And they're going to make a killing. In the real world, private spaceflight is pretty much the only game in town if you want to get off the planet without becoming a government astronaut. Now, the first ship, crewed entirely by civilians, no NASA astronauts in sight, is expected to launch in late 2021. The commander of that flight is a guy named Jared Isaacman. I definitely remember, you know, in kindergarten, elementary school, I was in the library and there was like this high resolution photo book that just came in of the space shuttle. And I just remember looking at it and I was like, I'm going to go to space someday. Jared is the 38-year-old founder of Shift4 Payments. In addition to running his company, Jared is a pilot and a billionaire. So in a world where private spaceflight is available to those who can afford it, Jared has the skills and resources to make his dream a reality. But why not just become an astronaut through NASA? I think this kind of goes to one of the coolest parts about our mission, Inspiration4, in that we're making it accessible to everyday people. 
your chances of becoming a NASA astronaut are better at getting struck by lightning. So pretty hard to become a NASA astronaut, and you certainly need a lot of degrees and an interesting background, be very well-rounded. And considering the track I went on early in life, it, it didn't make sense. No NASA? No problem. Because Jared is going his own route. He'll charter a ride on a SpaceX Dragon up into orbit, along with three other civilians, with all the money they've raised going to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Just like NASA has like Crew-1 and Crew-2, this is Inspiration4. It's a single orbital mission to space for a couple days. We intend to go higher than anyone's gone in altitude since uh, the Apollo days. It is kind of in furtherance of SpaceX's grand ambition to make space affordable and accessible for everyone with their ultimate goal of making humankind a multi-planetary species with a colony on Mars and such. So this is the first step in that direction. A noble venture, if you ask me. But Jared is more than just a guy with deep pockets. He grew up dreaming of spaceflight. So I had to ask what he was most looking forward to. When it comes time to actually launch and, and go into space, like... I just want to be really well prepared. I want to make sure that I didn't have any shortcuts along the way that, you know, I'm able to handle the responsibility no different than any commander would. And yeah, I'm looking forward to operating the spacecraft in orbit. And what about, come on, what about the cool stuff? Like, uh, you know, drinking the bubbles of orange juice and <laughs> eat, flying through and eating the chocolate-covered candies and all of that. Yeah, well, that's, you know, we're talking about, like, we could really expand the menu here because... <laughs> <laughs> they told us, like, one time they brought pizza to the space station, and, like, the yeast separated from the pizza and just started floating around, and it created, like, mold on the walls and everything. Wow. And it, they were like, it took six months to clean it, and they're like, <laughs> so they'll, they'll never allow pizza on space station again. I'm like, yeah, but we're only on this thing for, like, three or four days. Like, then it comes to Earth, and someone can, we can just clean it, right? So <laughs> let's get some pizza on this thing. Like, so I, I think we'll have a better menu than most <laughs> I mean, as you know, that we're basically in the midst of a, a race to Mars right now with SpaceX attempting to put together their initiative and NASA looking to do their own. Who do you think will get there first? I think SpaceX will. I don't think there's any question. So they're just innovative. They're very efficient. They stretch a dollar and make amazing things happen as a result. Just look at the pace uh, of development of Starship, right? They launch one, it lands, it blows up. They launch another one a week later. It lands, they learned a whole bunch. They push another one out, launch it again. Like, look at that pace of development, fail fast and progress. The government can't work at that pace and they can't work that efficiently. I'm sure you've been talking ad nauseum as you're in preparation for this, but what's the one thing that in all of the interviews you've been doing you wish that folks knew or understood? So it's a really good question. I do bring it all the way back to our North Star, which is inspiration. Mm -hmm. Because you look at, well, what are some of the, the reasons you shouldn't go to space? Well, everything about space is super expensive. And how could, as a society, how could we ever do that when we have so many real problems here on Earth? But we also have an obligation to make progress as well. Mm -hmm. And we think we've built that into inspiration for because it is that next step where, you know, more everyday people and not astronauts can go and explore among the stars. But it's at least trying to take care of some of the responsibilities we have here, which is the St. Jude angle. And what I would point people towards is, um, you know, Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean because that was one person who got to experience it and it was super expensive, right? And then 12 years later, Pan Am announces the first transatlantic 
commercial mm-hmm. service, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you just never know where this can come from here. So, it's achieving so much, like, I think, good balance, right? About, you know, making progress mm-hmm. and pushing boundaries for the benefit of others to follow, but also taking care of real responsibilities here. And, and I think it's all wrapped up in that inspiration message. Sometimes I am just floored by how fast all this is moving. I mean, we're about to see the first space flight of just a bunch of regular people. Okay, so maybe Jared isn't exactly your average Joe. But we are definitely getting into uncharted territory here. And what about the next Jared? The first one to go to Mars? Or deeper into space? Are we ready for that? What effects does this next level of space travel have on a person? Well, there are scientists preparing for this. I am Kelly Slack, and I am an industrial organizational psychologist. And I study the personality, the makeup of the people, the selection of astronauts. Uh, My name is Lacey Schmidt, and I am an industrial organizational psychologist. I mostly study teamwork in extreme environments. The ride to and from Mars is by far the longest journey any human will have ever taken to get anywhere. One of the biggest considerations we have in mind as we're thinking about going someplace like Mars, where you're looking at, you know, potentially 18 months travel time just to get there and then some time on the surface and potentially another 18 back. And losing that view to see Earth and take photographs and feel that connection to humanity. We've never done a study where people have been off the Earth except for these space studies like the International Space Station. And the very fact that viewing Earth, photographing Earth is their favorite activity by far, that is a huge red flag that not being able to see Earth on the way to Mars and the way back will be a big issue. They will feel disconnected from Earth and we don't know what that will do to people. We don't know what it will be like to be totally untethered. So how do you keep astronauts engaged for what could be 18 months in a little spaceship? One idea is to continue their training over the course of the flight. Another solution may involve some pretty cool sci-fi technology. Probably the most exciting solution I've seen to the out-of-Earth view and the training problem is the mixed reality approach that's emerging. Um, where you blend augmented reality with virtual reality so that you can have some visual interaction with things. So that would be an example of a way to train somebody for a medical procedure where you could project a patient into the capsule and verify that they know where to check pulse on the patient in an EVA suit or et cetera. But also maybe to interact with your family members if we get really smart in time so that you can set your spouse in the capsule with you while you're on that Zoom call. Yeah, they're talking about creating a virtual world. Someone at home can go in and leave an Easter egg for you. That would be one of the ways you could stay in connection. And um, you could have your favorite run that you could run. We've been doing that for years on the space station. We used to go through and physically take a golf cart and go through a run that the astronaut liked to do. And they would watch that while they exercised and their friends and family would pop out and run with them for a little bit and say hello. Dr. Slack and Dr. Schmidt have also found that there is a quality in certain astronauts that keeps them in the right frame of mind, which not everybody has. 
I've seen some astronauts who've gone up for three months and not dealt with it well at all. I've seen astronauts who have gone up for much longer than that who invent stuff while they're up there, who create their own activities, who find things that interest them and just go with it. And those are the ones who are the most successful, the ones who can take joy in where they are and doing what they want to do. Frankly, finding joy in what you're doing is not a bad lesson for any of us. But whoever those first deep space explorers are, they will have one heck of a journey ahead of them. I am very hopeful about all of our goals to explore into space. And and we have a decision to make, too, about how do we do that responsibly, right? Because with exploration, potentially comes exploitation. And if we have anything to fear, I think it's that. Are we wise enough to explore in a responsible way in the universe? Dr. Schmidt has a point. If we've learned anything from our past, it's that when human beings expand past their borders, things tend to get messy. So now that we're sending civilian missions to space and preparing ourselves for trips to Mars, my next guest says that we, as a species, need to make sure that we're doing this thing right. I'm sitting down today with lawyer, just overall intellectual, actual doctor, Timiebi Aganaba Genti. How you doing? I am so, so excited to be here. So first things first, tell our guests what it is that you do. So it's really interesting because I only recently understood my job title. <laughs> so I'm a lawyer. I have a space law background, but I really research, you know, the sociological implications of space. Mm-hmm. I care about the stakeholders and the different actors, particularly marginalized actors, and what is going to help and benefit them. So I'm not interested in space for the sake of space, but I'm interested in how does space help people. So I'm pushing transdisciplinarity and I'm pushing scientists and engineers to be more aware of social aspects and things like that so that space develops in a way that is inclusive. Sure. Up until recently, there was only ever one or two people at a time on the surface of the moon, and only a handful of people could ever be in space at any one time. It absolutely makes sense that we should start to think more aggressively about what life will be like for the individuals, not just about the science and the technology, but about the people who are actually there. Right. And it's going to be a very diversified community. And it's going to be a whole bunch of people from everywhere. And we don't want to take all our issues from Earth into space, even though the realist in me, the international lawyer in me who has sat at United Nations discussions knows that at the end of the day, humankind is humankind. Mm -hmm. And so we probably will take a lot of our issues with us. But there's something about space people where we have this utopia that space could be different. But of course, we know that futurism starts with historicalism. Mm -hmm. And so you've really got to understand the past, know where you're coming from and figure out what you want to change to make the future that you want. Yeah. One of the unfortunate things about this space exploration conversation is that it really is a pay-to-play game in Mm -hmm. many ways. The folks who have the money to put the training programs together and to send the rockets up, these are the guys who can afford to pay it so they can afford to buy the seats on the shuttle. But we also know that in an ideal society, the best ideas and the best people truly rise to the top. 
that doesn't often correlate with the folks who have the most money. Right. So I think what we're finding in this new space era is basically that there are an increasing number of actors coming into space. I mean, Euroconsult are tracking 80 countries who are investing in space, and most of them are developing countries. And, mm-hmm. you know, in 2018, these 80 countries invested $70 billion in space, wow. with the smallest being the Philippines investing $12 million and the U.S. investing $40 billion. And so for me, I'm like, it behoves these countries to be like, the little that we can do that has anything to do with space, we're going to add it as part of space so that we Mm -hmm. can be part of the development of discourse around whether we have a seat at the table today when we may not be the space superpowers. But definitely, as we're seeing more and more resources in space, like, you know, mining in space and like Mm -hmm. finding water, if you're not part of the conversation today, I tell you, you're going to be left out in 30 years because that's what we've seen on Earth historically. Without more voices at the table, we risk too few people making decisions that will affect everyone. The European Space Agency conceptualized that we are in the space 4.0 era now. Mm -hmm. There's increased number of private diverse actors, you know, participation with academia, industry and citizens, digitalization and global interaction. But Mm -hmm. we're actually in the emerging space 5.0 era, which basically is really marked by ethics, governance and law. We realize that to make space scale in the space 5.0 era, where you're now having individuals coming in, Mm -hmm. you're now having things like settlements. You've got to think about the social dimensions. And those social dimensions are bound to get complicated because the future won't just be about Americans in space and Russians in space and all these separate nationalities. The question in space is going to be like, well, what if someone is born in space, not in a habitat registered somewhere? They're Mm -hmm. born in space and the habitat was built in space, so not Mm -hmm. registered on Earth. I think that would make you a Martian. Yeah, I was going to say it seems inconceivable, but like just having this conversation, like it doesn't even seem that far-fetched. Not at all. So I'd always thought of space as this canvas, but increasingly in my work, I'm seeing that space is not really a canvas for you to paint a whole new picture. Space is a mirror. Space is actually reflecting back exactly how we are. And Mm -hmm. so if society is going to have tensions and things like that, We're Mm -hmm. still going to see those same tensions in space. And it's only as we keep saying, how do I keep bettering myself that I'm going to be able to take that version of me into space, recognizing Mm -hmm. that it's still always going to be a mirror, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, initially we were, you know, cave dwelling or whatever have you. And then as time went on and we entered new eras, we began to create art and philosophy and expand more and more. So it was no longer just about the basics of survival. And so what I'm hearing you say is that initially space exploration truly was just about the basics. And now that we have the infrastructure in place to know that we can do it and do it safely, within reason, it's not always perfect, but do it and do it safely, now we have to fill in the gaps. Now we have to color in color and not just black and white lines across the page. Oh, you said it so, you articulated that so well. Even, <laughs> even I'm going to steal that. That's do you my have room new- on your committee? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to steal that because you said it so well. That's my new favorite way of articulating. I love that. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. So here we are at the end of another episode. 
Usually at this point, I'd say something heartfelt about space travel and its next frontier. But what I haven't done yet is tell you something about me. I'm Chris Marshall, an actor, a wife, a daughter, a dog mom. And when the opportunity to host this podcast came to me, I thought to myself, why not? As I've said in the past, I came into this project with very little knowledge about science and technology and the world beyond our atmosphere. But along the way, I've learned so much. I learned about fortitude from Wally Funk, who even at the ripe old age of 82, still makes plans to go to space. I learned about grace from Joan Higginbotham, the third and last black woman in space who was saddled with the pressure of being the model minority, but never once let him see her sweat. And finally, I learned about courage from myself for trying something new, being willing to fail, but having faith that in the end, everything was gonna be all right. I wanna thank you all for joining me on this journey. The name of our show, For All Mankind, is taken from that well-known phrase, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And that is exactly what space exploration has been so far. Just a step. So I can't wait to see the leap that we take next. I want to thank my guests, Ron Moore, Jared Isaacman, Drs. Kelly Slack, Lacey Schmidt, and Timiebi Aganabagenti. This is Chris Marshall, safe and sound Earthside. Until next time, over and out. Thanks for listening to the For All Mankind podcast. This is the last episode of the podcast for this season, but be sure to hit the follow button here and watch For All Mankind on Apple TV Plus where available. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by Atwill Media. Executive produced by Will Malnati. Produced by Chris Marshall, Ashley Taylor, Patrick Farrell, Drew Beebe, and associate producer Dominique Ibekwe. Production coordination by Latavia Young. Sound editing by lead editor Rachel Leitner, as well as editors Nick Stargue and Andrew Holzberger. Engineered by Andrew Holzberger, Jameson Katsufis, and Jake Young. Audio post-production by 1000 Birds, including Gwen Frayling, Kara McKnight, Andreas Velasquez, Jackie Zoe, and KT People.